Well, we are back in 2 Samuel. You can turn there. Our theme, as we continue with this, with this narrative, David in bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, the newly established tent, tabernacle tent there in Jerusalem that David has set up to re- here is worship again. And we'll see the importance that David places on worship, the right importance. We saw last week, David was schooled in a lesson about right worship, and he learned it well. Uh, so we're going to continue uh, these thoughts on this evening. Remember, David is now king of all of Israel, and he's made Jerusalem the capital city, captured it once and for all. They would never need to recapture it in that sense again. And in it's a strategic location. Its centrality to all of Israel makes it a very wise choice. Uh, the top of a, a hill very strategic place. That's why the scripture many times says that they would go up, let us go up to Jerusalem because it's on Mount Zion. And so um, God at the same time has given David victory over his enemies. The Philistines stand out in our minds. They no longer pose a serious threat really to the nation. You think of Philistines and the difficulties that they went through, Israel went through with them from Samson um, all the way to Saul. That is no small thing that God gives uh, sustaining victory for David and for Israel over this very challenging enemy, but he does. And through all these blessings and the continued blessings that we'll see in this passage, David has his highest priority. His greatest concern is still worship of God by God's people. David has already uh, written many psalms at this point. He is a leader in worship, and it is time in his mind now, probably, of course, led by God to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem so it can be accessible for the whole nation as they worship, not that they can go into the whole Holy of Holies and access it, don't misunderstand me, but as it's placed there, that all of Israel is able to come to the tabernacle and worship appropriately there with the Ark of the Covenant, with God's presence symbolized through that Ark of the Covenant. And they're able to do right worship. Well, he had a well-intentioned but unfortunately misinformed first attempt we saw last week as David tried to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. And because he did not do it God's way, and there's some, I think, fault with the priests and the Levites not teaching the people. Teaching is important, a misunderstanding. That first attempt actually brought death and disillusionment. David was disillusioned and fearful. But then they received a report of great blessing where the ark was, was left. And David's enthusiasm revives. And now they're going to carry the ark to Jerusalem under better informed conditions. David's going to do it the right way, follow the, the right prescription that was always in Scripture, very clear in Scripture. Not sure how David missed it. Um, David did, did has always seemed to have a good idea of what God's Word and His law says, but in this instance, he missed it. But now 
David has um, has double checked, has researched what God's word has to say about that. And even though um, we're, we're not told specifically that David has done that in 2 Samuel, uh, we are told in 1 Chronicles. And I, by the way, let me just make mention that I appreciate it. I always appreciate when many of you come up afterwards and give further insights or maybe even reminders to me of different passages of scriptures. And, and some did that uh, last week. And as I was talking, got some good insight here that I'm able to add uh, to this. And one of those uh, that was brought to my attention was First Chronicles 15. It was a reminder to me, yes, actually, I just turned there just briefly. We are given an account. Chronicles covers many of the events of David. But it puts David and the events of some of the other kings in a more positive light because the books of Chronicles are more worship-oriented. Their purpose is entirely different from the books of the kings and the books of First and Second Samuel to chronicle God's work among their people. But, I'm sorry, the books of Chronicles focus on, focus on the worship history, really, of Israel and God's people. And so it gives us a little more insight into what happened uh, as this thing happened with Uzzah, and he died, and David realized that something was going wrong. David made a point to correct that. So David 15, verse 1, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of the Lord, of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. This is after the events that took place with Uzzah. David makes it clear, okay, we've checked God's word. We're more informed now. The Levites carry the ark of God. And David all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And it goes through the list of names of the Levites. Um, and let's skip ahead to verse 12. And he said to all those men, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. Here he equates the presence of God with the ark of the Lord. To the place where I have prepared for it. David is ready in every aspect. He understands now how to carry it. He understands how the priests and the men carrying it need to consecrate and prepare themselves ahead of time. And then he brings up very specifically verse 13. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. David does seem to put um, a good part of the responsibility on, on these men, on the priests and Levites, although I'm sure he learned from this as well. Uh, they could have benefited from uh, better instruction by God's worship leaders. Uh, and so David brings this out. And now they're doing it right, and the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. David is fully informed now, and he's handling this in a right way. And as this right worship is taking place, things are done 
according to God's law, according to his word, it makes the worship even sweeter. I think that's a focus here as well. And so go back to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we'll remind ourselves a little bit of the background here. That background in Chronicles shows us that David researched and found out God's expectations and impressed them upon everybody, made sure they did it right. And then we have a little bit of that. Then back in 2 Samuel chapter 6, look at verse the, the second part of verse 12. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. There's even more joy, it seems, now than ever. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Again, every six steps that they did this, or they would have never, it would have taken them a long time to get to Jerusalem. But I think this idea here is an initial sacrifice. Uh, David is making sure that everything is done appropriately, taking time to do that. And because he's doing it in the right way, I think in the context here that it brings him even more joy. Verse 14, and he advanced before the Lord with all his might. And we talked about that that idea is a whirling and a twirling, not any sort of sensual type of, of dance. And uh, even Kurt mentioned last week, this is a celebratory dance. There's nothing sensual about this at all. This is David rejoicing in worship. And David was wearing, wearing a linen ephod. Uh, from what we can tell, the inner cloak of the priests, and we'll get more into this because it's going to come up again, as David is viewed dancing with this linen ephod, it was a that would have covered maybe most of him, possibility that part of it was open and they could see maybe part of his body underneath, but it does seem like um, he was covered for the most part. And David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark with the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. There's excitement and exuberance in this. We're worshiping the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, after decades of being um, away from the people of Israel and not being able to worship together. It's coming, and we're doing this in the right way. David's checked this. The Levites have put their stamp of approval. We're obeying God and worshiping. And again, that idea that, folks, some of the greatest joy that we should experience is when we're worshiping God in a right way. It ought to bring excitement and enthusiasm, as it obviously did with David, regardless of whether we're whirling and twirling or not. So David's now worshiping in the right way. And what we're going to see here then throughout the rest of the narrative, as we head into chapter 7, David's reflects now right responses to worship. But there's going to be others around him that will exhibit wrong responses, and that will bring warning and condemnation. And so tonight's message is right and wrong responses to worship. Let's continue to read. Let's, let's skip ahead to verse 17 in chapter 6. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. Father, we're thankful for this wonderful example of, of David in the midst of, of the stumble that he had earlier. 
and not in, in being prescribed. We're thankful for his humility and his willingness to go back to your word, to renew and um, reissue um, this, this processional in a way that was pleasing and honoring to you. And in that right worship, the joy that it brought David and Israel, and we're glad for that. Help us to realize that, but at the same time, Lord, we find in this narrative that there are those that still have worship issues, and it will cause difficulty and even um, great loss in one case when people disdain or dishonor you or make light of right worship. So help us to learn tonight what happens uh, with David and those around him. And let us, even as we um, briefly go through this narrative, uh, make the choice again to desire to worship you and, and to worship you in the right way um, with your guidance and help. And so we pray for that even tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Worship, right and wrong responses to worship. And first of all, Worship brings responses of joy, but also sometimes disapproval. Not everybody appreciates when God is worshipped in the right way, unfortunately. One day when Jesus returns, all will bow before him. But we know today that there are many that in disgust turn away. And unfortunately, David had one of those in his own household. But David, on the other hand, worshipped God with energy and generosity. Look back at verse 16 now. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she did not have the right response, but she despised him in her heart. David's entering the city, leading the ark and processional, and his energy and exuberance catches the notice of his wife, Michael. And obviously, she does not share his enthusiasm for worship. Um, his energy and freedom in worship, and I don't mean freedom in worship, but the freedom of, of joy and the fact that he's worshiping God in the right way, to her, it causes her to despise him. Something's broken here, right? We can tell that. What, what does this come from? Well, we'll see more here in a minute. But I think really this stems from Michael's despising of God that keeps her from joining in the worship. Why wasn't she worshiping with everybody else? Were David's other family members worshiping? No, not Michael. And I think what we have here is that in her heart, unfortunately, rather like her father, she despises God rather than honors him. And so an energy and excitement for worship of God to her is nothing more than disgust, embarrassment, and she despises those who are involved in that. Well, that's unfortunate, and we're going to get back to that in a minute. Let's get to the positive aspect of this. Meanwhile, verse 17, and they brought in the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, and the excitement, I'm sure, of these people, again, shouting, sound of the horn, the king dancing and twirling in, in excitement and enthusiasm. For the ark of the Lord has set it in its place. That would be the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle. Remember, it's still in a tent. There's no temple, 
right? And so David pitched this, this tent, and I'm sure that he followed the regulations in God's law. I'm sure David paid much closer attention. And so it comes in, and the people are excited. It's brought in carefully, I'm sure, by the priests, the high priests, into the Holy of Holies, into the tent that David had pitched for it. And then now David offers burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. David is intricately involved with the worship offerings. Either he's maybe offering some of them himself, which is interesting, right? Or, more probable, he's also instructing the priests to offer these up. But David's leading this worship, and he's leading. He is... Um, taking on the role of a priest. He offers a blessing upon the people, and we'll see here in just a minute, gives generous gifts to all. Here is the king taking on the role of high priest. And if you think about his psalms, we've seen this many times, his psalms are, many of them are prophetic. Prophet, priest, and king. Hmm. I think there's a picture there. I think it's obvious, and Scripture bears this out, that David is a central Christ figure in the Old Testament, a lot like Moses, but a lot like another guy, too. His name's a little harder to pronounce. His name is Melchizedek. I mentioned this last week. The more I studied this, the more I'm convinced there is a connection here. Um, and the way that David operates, remember we made the connection, we're going to see here, and we're going to turn to Genesis 14 just to get the whole picture here, but Melchizedek is described as the king of Salem. That would have been the ancient version of Jerusalem, where David is now. And remember that I, I gave or I suggested that because David had conquered Jerusalem, that then he had rights like Melchizedek did also to lead in worship as Melchizedek did. And I, what, what David does here as the people come together and how he responds to the people. Well, in fact, let's just continue to read here, and then we'll turn to Genesis 14. David is leading the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. Remember, the peace offerings also involve the people eating together. So there's a lot of rejoicing, and there's a lot of food. And you put those two together, and the people of Israel are having a day to remember. They're having a great time. But David also, he blesses the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And typically, only the priest is allowed to bless the people, but David is allowed to do that. And distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. I can't help. I'm sorry. Uh, when I think of a cake of raisins, I always think of those little Debbie snack cakes of the raisins with cream in the middle. Like, I don't think that's what's going on here, but now I'm hungry. So I don't think we have those at home, do we? All the people departed each to his house. Well, why would David give gifts? Is he just feeling extra generous? Well, there is a precedent here. Turn to Genesis 14. Remember Abraham and Melchizedek? Abraham, God gave him victory over the king's uh, that were uh, held captive, king of Sodom and others, allows Abraham and his servants basically a victory that uh, powerful armies could not gain. And God blesses him because of that. So Genesis 14, verse 17. And after his, Abraham's return 
or Abram, get it right, from the defeat of Sheldal Lamar, and the kings were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabbat. That is the king's valley. Why is it the king's valley? Because the king is going to arrive there. Melchizedek, king of Salem, the ancient city that would one day, from what we can tell, be Jerusalem. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. And listen to this next description. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Here is Melchizedek, who is king, who is also a priest. And I think in this blessing that he pronounces on Abraham also has some tones of prophet, of a prophet, and pronouncing a blessing upon him, prophet, priest, and king back in Genesis, and notice that Melchizedek brought gifts of sustenance. Now, some scholars tie this in with what David's doing. As an example, looking back on Melchizedek, he sure, certainly would have had access to um, the old, their Old Testament, the books written by Moses, so he would have known of Melchizedek. I think it's a good possibility that David is in taking on priestly duties, that the, that the people and that he understands that because he conquered Jerusalem, he now has the privileges that Melchizedek did. And one of the things Melchizedek did was give gifts, and so David's giving gifts. I can't say for absolute certainty that's the case, but it makes good sense to me. And do you remember what the author of Hebrews says? From David's lineage would come Messiah, who was a priest after what order? The order of Melchizedek. So this connection with David then, in my mind, fits right into that. David is legitimately able to follow in the order of Melchizedek because he conquered Jerusalem, Melchizedek's former top city that he reigned, and then eventually he'll have implications for the Messiah himself. And it all kind of fits together here. So I think David is following the example of Melchizedek as he gives, and he's just being generous. He's a happy guy, and he's excited about what's going on, and he wants the people to rejoice as well. Everybody's rejoicing. This is a marvelous event. And so after all of this, verse 20, David returned to bless his household. He now returns to worship with his own household, with his family, with his servants. And you can understand maybe David's disappointment if you've ever looked at something that, that's successful and some sort of ministry goal where God has blessed, and you look back on the day and say, man, look what God did here, and look what God did here. I'm just so happy about how things turned out. And somebody says something really negative, kind of deflates the whole thing, and it makes you a little upset, right? Well, unfortunately, he's going to face that with his own wife. And he returns, and he's met with disdain and Catch this dripping sarcasm from Michal. David returned to bless his household, but Michal, and they remind us, the daughter of Saul, David, and said, how the king of Israel on himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female, his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. Obviously, Michal is one of those that wields the knife, the sword of sarcasm, very well, and is able to be very cutting 
you can imagine this remark. David's excited. He's worshipped God in the right way. The context makes it clear. And here he comes in, and the cow greets him. And she says, you have been involved in shameful conduct to impress the young ladies, the young servants, David. And you put it under the guise of worship, you hypocrite. Ouch. That's not something that you want to face after a wonderful celebratory day like this. Well, first of all, did any of this hold any truth to it? Was David without proper clothing? I remember my parents watching a movie that came out in the 80s about David. Um, and as you would imagine, they took a lot of liberties in it. One of those things I remember specifically, though, that stood out to me as far as David, that showed him dancing. It had the whirling and twirling, um, but it basically had him in nothing more than a loincloth. Um, and sometimes people take that interpretation based on what Nikal says here and part of the description. Um, but really, from what we can tell here, that it's not appropriate to consider him in that light because it says that he had the linen ephod on, which for all intents and purposes was the inner robe that the priest wore. Perhaps maybe it was open in the front and revealed part of his body, but it was just Nikal's bitterness and anger toward him, hyperbole. And I think this shows her disdain for the priesthood altogether. You took off your, I think she's saying something like this, in other words. You dishonored yourself and took off your royal clothes and put on the garments of the, of the priesthood. You're like a vulgar fellow. Maybe I think she's, she's really um, accusing him of being a hypocrite as well. And you did this just to impress the young ladies. Wow. That's, that's hard. Why would she be so disdainful for the priesthood? I think in Mikhail's mind, honestly, she says, can't believe my husband would dress like a priest. My father would have never done that. She's right. Her father would have never done that. He held as little, he held as, in some ways, as much disdain. He did not hold the priest in high esteem. Could we say that? I mean, he eliminated a whole town of them. So, yes, Mikhail's right. Father acted this way. And that was one of the reasons that God disciplined him from and took away his leadership as king. Think about this. We've gotten to this point. I've talked to some of you already. David is a Christ figure, but he's definitely not a perfect one, right? And some of you have already mentioned to me some concerns and some disappointment that David would do certain things and you know you haven't seen half of it yet if I could put that in a few chapters David was imperfect but why was he a man after God's own heart I think this is one of the key things is because David was um was intent upon wanting to worship God wanting to exalt God Saul and Saul had some strengths. He had many weaknesses, but ultimately Saul really didn't care about worshiping God. Honestly, you think about what we've talked about so far. Saul had really a disregard for the priests, for God. They, when they were convenient for him to use, he'd use them, but he had no real desire to worship. And David, we can tell by his joy and his happiness, even when he makes mistakes, he wants to do right. He wants to make sure that God's exalted. God's giving him all these blessings, and we're going to see here in just a minute. And his concern is, but God needs to be exalted. God's blessing my life. 
but I need to exalt God. And David shows us here a wonderful example of a man that desires to exalt and to praise and honor God. Can't we see that in Psalms? Read his desire to exalt the Lord and his dependence upon God and his love for God and his love for God's word. He wasn't a perfect man, but he is an exemplary, exemplary example. Um, he is an effective example. God working in his life here. And Macau and Saul and his family, except for Jonathan, despised the worship of the Lord. Well, I'd like to say that David responded in a careful, gentle way here, but I think this caught David by surprise. And if you've ever had someone close to you, that after you've had a wonderful time and you're excited about cold water on the whole thing, you know how hard it is to respond in the right way. So maybe we might give David a little slack here, although I think he could have been more careful. He continues the war of words here. It's kind of like throwing a fire on, on gas, a match on gasoline or something. And David makes it clear that he was not dancing for any other audience and for God than but God himself. David, in his harsh response here, still makes it very clear to Michal that he was dancing for the Lord, something that she had no interest in. But he was only concerned about his worship, and his only audience was God. He was concerned about an audience of one, what God thought of him. And he was energetic and exuberant in this. Verse 21, David said to Michal, it was before the Lord. And then look at the end of that verse. And I will celebrate before the Lord. He was my only audience. I wasn't think, trying to impress anyone except God. And that's good. As far as not trying to impress him, but the understanding of exalting, excuse me. But then this dig here, who chose me above your father and above all his house. Let me remind you, Macau, who was chosen to be leader here. And he doesn't say king. He says, to appoint me as a prince over Israel, even in his anger here, he, he is humble enough to admit that he is not, he doesn't think of himself as a king because God is king, but he is a leader that God is allowed to lead Israel. He refers to him as, himself as a prince, the people of the Lord. God made him leader, prince in place of her father and her family and her brothers over all Israel. And because God had done that, he's basically saying here, he tells her, I will celebrate before the Lord, regardless of your nasty comments, Macau, because I will not be denied the opportunity to worship and show gratitude to my God, regardless of your sarcasm. Fighting, direct, yes, but there's a point that's important. Macau this. She had no desire for worship. David says, this is all about worshiping God. And I'll go even further. He doesn't stop there. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. If you find this offensive, Macau, get ready. You're going to be even more offended by my actions because I'm going to continue to worship God. And he says, I will be abased in your eyes. You basically, that basically has the idea of, I don't need to impress you. The people around me, even those young maidens, they understand that our audience is God and he is worthy of our praise. Notice what he says there. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, 
By them I shall be held in honor. And again, he's not in any way implying that um, they had any ulterior motive in desire for David like she's implying, right? Servant who are in a lesser position, Nikal, than you are, understand why I'm doing this. And you've missed the whole point. And by them I shall be held in honor. Everybody that was involved in this, Mikal, except you, it seems, knew that I was doing this to worship the Lord. He made it clear who his side was. And that Mikal was more acting in this instance, and it was exemplifying, really illustrating her whole life. She was more a daughter of Saul than she was a wife of David. She was following in her father's footsteps in a very unfortunate way. And she's going to face condemnation because of this. This may, may sound harsh, verse 23. But remember, Cal has for um, many years, it seems to be a pattern. Do you remember back when she was trying to and she let window? What does she do? What does she put in place to make it look like there was a, that he was sleeping in his bed? Her idols. Cal, it seems from what we can tell, uh, worships false gods. And so that all adds to this picture that she's not one that worships God. And she despises God in the way that her father did, unfortunately. And God deals with her, verse 23. Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Some scholars say, well, David just never paid her much attention anymore. Didn't go into her, and she never had children again. I think the context here is that God condemns her for her really hatred and bitterness and, this, and despising of him and her lack of desire for worship at all, her lack of desire to exalt God and to submit to him. And so she has this punishment the rest of her life. Let me just add something here as we think, because this is the last time we'll hear about Michal again. Can we kind of understand? I think we can kind of sympathize with it, right? In some regards. She's not had it easy. Um, she, from the very beginning of the relationship, it was obvious in the description that she truly had a love for David. There was a real love there. And I think they loved each other. She was willing to help him, even against her own father. But maybe she was upset that David never came back to her. Certainly when her dad just decided, not having no concern for her own feelings, but just to marry her off, give her a quick divorce and marry her off to someone else. That had to have been hard if she still loved David. But then it seems as if uh, we have information that when David requested her to be brought back to them, to him, her former husband, you remember that situation, that really awkward description where he's pining after her and following her and finding the, the king's officials say, just go home. Don't make this any worse than it already is. If he felt that way toward Mikal, Probably Mikhail felt that way toward him. She was torn away from a relationship that where she really had feelings for someone a second time. And now is brought back to David. She's lost her father. She's lost all of her family. You know, Ishbosheth. She still has a nephew, but that's going to end the story. Um, she's going through it. And we can, from a human standpoint, sympathize and say, well, I can understand her being a little bit bitter. Until we remember our responsibility before God. Has David gone through any less, by the way? 
David's gone through a lot too. Is David bitter and despising God? No, again, he's not perfect, but he gives us an example. David, through all that God put him through, still has a love and exuberance for God that Michal never had. And folks, it's a reminder to us that when very, very difficult things happen to you and your heart is broken and you, so you um, experience deep hurt, don't blame God. Don't despise him. Don't get angry with him. But like David, depend on him. Run to Christ. Right? Put it in our um, context today. Run to Jesus. Seek and depend upon him. Ask for his help. Don't run away. Two opposite responses in worship. David, when he had difficult things, and yet God blessed him uh, later on through all these things, he wanted to worship God with all his might. Michal, through her difficulties, became bitter and angry and was condemned for the rest of her life. Would she have had opportunity to repent? I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that she could have gone before God and repented, and God would have given her children. Maybe she could have helped raise her nephew that we'll find out about very soon and help him as the only member of her family left. But it doesn't seem like that ever happened. And she faces condemnation. Well, there's two other quick responses here. We only have a couple verses. I want us to see as well in the next few verses of chapter 7 that worship brings responses of humility and eagerness. And as David has gone through all of this worship, and he's contemplating all the blessings that God has given him. Remember, God has given him a palace now. He's made him king overall. He's allowed him to bring the Ark of the Covenant and, bring, and make the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And David's just overwhelmed with the mercies of God in his life. It says, now when the king lived in his house, he had his palace, and the Lord had given him rest. But there's another aspect from his surrounding enemies. Uh, he, there's another chapter that comes up here very soon. It basically just lists David's victories over all of his enemies, and they're uh, quite impressive. God gives them peace from these surrounding enemies that were really difficult situations for the people of Israel for decades, for literally hundreds of years, and now they have peace, and David's looking all around, and it's, wow, this is wonderful. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, now, Nathan is going to be a significant figure, but he just kind of appears here out of nowhere. We haven't heard anything about him before this. We're going to find out that he will, God will use him in a significant way in David's life throughout the rest of his life. But how he became a prophet or when David first became acquainted with him, we have no idea. But it does seem, though, if I can mention this, that even though God took Jonathan, his godly friend, away from him, Nathan kind of fills the gap here. And Nathan is the godly influence of David's life that's willing to confront him, as we know, but also encourage him and bring the word of the Lord to him. And so he's discussing his desire to want to worship God and to honor God for all that God has done for him. Another sign that there is a good, healthy spiritual friendship here. And he said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Look at what God's done for me in this beautiful palace from all these, these cedar beams from Hiram of Tyre and all of this that God's given me. And we're worshiping God and his presence is just a tent. Nathan, can we do something about this? I have a desire. And David is doing right here by going to God's man and inquiring, basically, of the Lord, can I do this? So David, again, is involved in worship. He wants to 
come up with a better dwelling that in his mind fits the majesty and the glory of God beyond just a tent. And um, Nathan responds and presents an eagerness for David to worship because God's presence is with David. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, there's a right and there's a wrong response to worship um, in these two, three verses. Let me just throw this out for you tonight. What's the right and the wrong response? I guess I already told you the right one. <laughs> Why would I say that there's a, a wrong response here in worship? Anybody pick it up? Let's read a little further. What does Nathan say? And you can sense in Nathan, yeah, this is a, that's a wonderful idea, David. His eagerness for God to be worshipped in the right way. Now we're not gonna we're gonna go in, get into this passage more next week. But just read a couple more verses. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan: Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord: Would you build up me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I was brought up of the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Um, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I don't think he's um, chastising David anyway. I think this is a gentle rebuke on Nathan. He's saying, Nathan... You were the one that gave David the okay, but I never asked for there to be a palace or a temple built in my name, Nathan. Nathan, even though he has a right, a understandable response here, Nathan, as God's representative, didn't actually check with God. <laughs> and even though what he wanted to do was right and he wanted to encourage David, it was a wrong response to worship because, folks, we may have uh, a legitimate desire to want to do something for God, but we have to check with God to make sure that he um, desires or that he, he it is something he wants us to do, that we're in obedience to him. There are many things that out of good intent. We saw that with Uzzah and the ark. That yet, that with good intentions, there was a lot of trouble that came. Nathan hadn't quite learned that yet. Go ahead, David, do it. That's a great idea. The Lord is with you. Well, no, the Lord wasn't actually. And Nathan's really a wrong response to worship, even though we understand his eagerness for that. He didn't check with God. Reminds me here at the end, I'll just give you a quick um, story and we'll finish in these right and wrong responses of worship. A young lady that was in my youth group came up to me a couple of years after she was in college and she had this wonderful desire to want to, to serve the Lord in some way. The Lord had blessed her in a lot of ways. She wanted to go on a missions trip. Um, and there was a number of missions trips, I, if I remember correctly, that she was considering. But it was kind of last minute, and they kind of fell through. But she found one open slot um, in a missions trip to a place called Cambodia. This was her first missions trip, by the way. She didn't seem to be quite as prepared for it as she described me what was happening, uh, but they were last minute able to get her a plane ticket. She was able to go with the group. Um, they got over there. The leadership really didn't seem to understand or didn't have a full, didn't seem fully capable or 
were confident in their schedule and what they were doing. Uh, it seemed a little iffy the more she, that she got into it. And then uh, what happens, one of the, of the team members, and it was a young lady that she was friends with, got very, very sick. And there was only, at that point, one leader of the group. And that leader had to go with that young lady to another country, because it's Cambodia, to find proper medical attention and had to leave the other girls, including this girl there, with a couple of local ministry leaders that he trusted pretty well. And she started telling me about some of the troubles that they had and some of the things they were eating. These, all of these, this group ended up getting some sort of, of stomach ailment because of some of the things, food poisoning, basically. They didn't have their leader with them. He was away trying to take care of this other girl. And they were scared. They were nervous. They and, and the whole thing just, I mean, the Lord, they, they prayed and the Lord brought them out of it. And in the end, she said, you know, it was a, it was a big learning experience for her. But honestly, as she talked about it, I sensed that there was a real desire to want to do something for God, but it hadn't been that well thought through. And the, um, the consequences of that were this group. It, it, was, it wasn't the best for her to be in. And I kind of wondered, as she gave the story, I really didn't hear or sense that she had really prayed and talked to the Lord about this and that she was prepared for it. And my only point in bringing that out is, folks, we can have a lot of well-intentioned things that we want to do for God, but just check in with them first. Talk with them. Make sure that it's on his agenda for us to do those, even those good things in worship. And so we have David with the right response, following God's word, doing things, checking with God's men to make sure that his worship is appropriate. In the midst, we have one person in particular, very bitter really probably doesn't have a relationship, despises God, and another that loves God, a leader that should have known better, but forgot to check in with him and make sure that the plans were appropriate. So these wrong and right responses, it just shows us, folks, the importance God places on worship. Don't, as you look at the blessings of God, and maybe you're going through some hardships, still run to him. Be willing to submit yourself and worship to him. And even during difficult times, when you worship him in the right way, those times will be sweet. And he will give you joy in the midst of your darkness. Don't turn against him. But also as you worship him, let's make sure again that that common theme that we are doing worship in a right way that God wants us to do. And it'll be even sweeter and more joyful uh, when we do it that way. Let's 